1 Samuel chapter 29, verse 1 through 11. The Philistines brought all their military units together at Aphek, while Israel was camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine leaders were passing in review with their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing in review behind them with Achish. Then the Philistine commanders asked, what are these Hebrews doing here? Achish answered the Philistine commanders, that is David, servant of King Saul of Israel. He has been with me a considerable period of time, and from the day he defected until today. I found no fault with him. The Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, send that man back and let him return to the place you assigned him. He must not go down with us into battle only to become our adversary during the battle. What better way could he integrate himself with his master than with heads of our men? Isn't this the David they sing about during their dances? Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. So Achish summoned David and told him, as the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. I think it is good to have you fighting in this unit with me because I found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think you are reliable. Now go back quietly and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. But what have I done? David replied to Achish. From the first day I entered your service until today, what have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Achish answered David, I'm convinced that you are as reliable as an angel of God. But the Philistine commanders have said he must not go into battle with us. So get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you. And when you've all gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated now. Well, good morning, church. Um, my name is Andrew. I serve as one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures today. So if you have the Bibles, I encourage you to grab those, open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 29 to the passage Kim just read for us as we uh, continue our study of this book. Uh, we're kind of in the home stretch, a couple of weeks left of walking through 1 Samuel together under a series titled When Mess Meets Mercy, uh, the Gospel of 1 Samuel. Now that title uh, for this series is is uh, fits this passage really well. It's, we're kind of finding David, this guy we've been learning about over the past several weeks. We've been finding, we find David sort of in a mess of his own making. Now, my sister Heather's in town this weekend visiting from Texas, and, and that got me thinking about her kids. She has three beautiful kids, a boy named Jabin, another boy named Jet, and a little girl named Piper. Well, years ago when Jabin was little, I had the opportunity to watch him one afternoon, and apparently I didn't do a very good job, because uh, I was uh, paying attention to a baseball game on the television, and Jabin wandered into the kitchen, and I just kind of lost track of him for a few moments, and then I realized, oh yeah, I need to watch this little guy, so I get up, and I go into the kitchen, I turn the corner, and I find Jabin just wrist deep in dishwashing liquid, as he managed to pull out a big family-sized uh, bottle of dishwashing liquid, and pour it all over the floor, and then he's just spreading it all over, but the moment he sees me, he gets scared, he jumps up, and he takes off running down the hall, and he slams the door behind him, and I'm stuck there looking at this mess, wondering, how do you clean something that's what you clean with? It's just this paradox I was kind of stuck with for a few moments, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out what to do, and then I just hear this slap. 
this slapping of a hand on a doorknob. And I turn and I walk up the, the hallway and I get to Jabin's door and on the other side, the light is off because when he shut the door, he forgot to turn the switch on and he was too little probably to do that. And so he's sitting there in a dark room and he wants out, he's scared, he's frantic and he starts slapping the doorknob, but he can't get out because his hands are too slippery with all the dishwashing liquid. So it's just kind of falling off the doorknob time and time again. Jabin was quite literally stuck in a mess of his own making. And it got me thinking about life in a fallen world. And you know that life in a world like this is messy. And if you're like me, there are times as you journey through this life where you find yourself stuck in messes of your own making. You're stuck in a room on the other side of the door and you can't get a grip on the knob to get out. And what you need in that moment is for somebody from somewhere to come and to help you out. Someone who can come to the other side of the door and get a grip on it and open it up so that you can go free. But if you're not careful as you're waiting on that to happen, and if you're not taking some time to practice a little bit of prudence while you're kind of waiting in that mess and waiting in that moment, if you're not careful, you may end up making a messy situation worse. Now, this is essentially the problem that David is facing at the start of chapter 29. If you've been journeying with us, you know that David has been living with the Philistines, the ferocious enemies of the Israelites. He's been living with them for about 16 months. And if you recall from his narrative that the only reason why David is there is because he stopped trusting the Lord. In a flight of unbelief and in a flight of fear, David took off to seek refuge amongst the Philistines, trying to escape Saul, believing there, not believing that the Lord would take care of him anymore. And so at the beginning of chapter 27, David hits a low point. He says, one of these days I'll be swept away by Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape immediately to the land of the Philistines. Now, a sure sign of a depleted faith, a sure sign of a depleted faith is when we start listening to lies. And often the most influential lies in our lives are those that are the lies that we tell ourselves the lies that we tell ourselves to stoke unbelief or the lies that we tell ourselves to stoke fear. And that drives us to make erratic decisions and we put ourselves in messy situations and we find ourselves surrounded by stuff that we don't really want and we don't really like. And if we're not careful and we don't learn to counter such lies with truth, we're going to flee to the wrong places and take refuge in the wrong spaces. Now, the Lord wouldn't have let Saul sweep David away. God promised that David was going to be king. That was going to happen. And he's repeatedly, time and time again, he's repeatedly delivered David from Saul's attacks and from Saul's schemes. There were even moments when David had a chance to take Saul out and to end all of his promise, all of his problems right Then and there, but David instead shows mercy, he shows kindness, he shows compassion, even towards a man who's trying to kill him. And there was one moment where after he did that, Saul kind of woke up to to the mercy of God coming through David, and he began to realize it seems that he's not going to take David out, he's not going to beat David. And so he makes this statement. He tells David, you are blessed, my son. You will certainly do great things and will also prevail. Now, things got twisted between chapter 26 and chapter 27, where Saul is speaking more truth than David is listening to. 
That was a true word that Saul was speaking. It was a truer word than the words that David is declaring at the start of chapter 27. See, when it came to Saul and how David interacted with Saul, David maintained a sense of righteousness. He maintained a sense of integrity. He maintained a sense of faithfulness. He never sought to raise a hand against the Lord's anointed, even when it's a guy that's gone haywire like like Saul. And so there were many wonderful moments of faith and many wonderful moments of obedience marking David's story but we find that those moments were quickly and irrationally followed by a terrible spot of unbelief and a terrible spot of fear when David left Israel and sought refuge among the Philistines. You see, when you and I are living and acting out of unbelief or we are living and acting out of fear, we do put ourselves in precarious situations. And we create for ourselves problems and dilemmas of various stripes. And so the future king of Israel, that is David, in this passage is confronted with a problem. There's a big problem that he's facing because the Philistine forces, among whom he and his 600 kind of band of brothers that kind of stuck with him through his trials and through his flights from Saul, the he and his soldiers are there in the land of the Philistines, and the Philistines are readying themselves for battle. They're getting ready to go after Israel to fight against the Lord's people. And we're told at the start that the, commander of, the commanders of the Philistine forces, they look over and they see David and his men, and they, they don't like it. They ask the question, what are these Hebrews doing here? And this was sort of a condescending question because it was designed to put David and his forces in their place. But these are Hebrews. They don't belong here. They're not among us. But it was, so it was a condescending question on one hand, but it was also a clarifying question. It was a question designed to clarify the fact that David and his forces were neither welcomed, they were not wanted. It was a question that clarified the commander's suspicion of this guy. They did not trust David and his men to go into the trenches with them, and for good reason. Who would want to go into a situation like that? But Achish, the leader of the Philistines, he's not the sharpest guy around. He, he's a guy who tends to make lots of assumptions, and you know what assumptions can do to a person as this guy's making assumptions over and over and over again, and so he vouches for David. He speaks up for David. He says that David has defected and that David has joined him and he's going to fight with him. And so apparently over time, Achish has grown to trust David. He thinks David is a type of mercenary soldier that's now fighting with him and for him against the people of Israel. Now, the reason he thinks that is because as David and his men were living in a place called Ziklag, that was a territory that Achish gave to David and to his men as a way of saying, you can live here and you can kind of operate from this space. Well, David, while he was there, he began to launch a series of attacks. He started going to war. Now, Achish, who wasn't near there, he was off at his other space and he caught wind of David fighting battles and Achish assumed that David was fighting against Israel. But if you recall from that moment in the story, David didn't fight against Israel. Instead, he took up arms against Israel's ancient enemies. 
these other people groups that were littered throughout the land that, that he went and fought against. And if you remember, it was kind of a tragic story. We're told that David left no man, woman, or child alive. He left no eyewitnesses. And the reason he didn't leave any eyewitnesses is because he did not want word to get back to Achish so that Achish, so that his cover might be blown. And Achish realizes that David's not really fighting for the Philistines. And he's certainly not fighting against, against Israel. And so David, over time, he begins to see how Achish is just making assumption after assumption, and he feels no obligation to correct them. He doesn't correct or clarify any assumptions that, that Achish is making. And so when you get to this moment, Achish is in a, or David now finds himself in a situation where he's kind of facing this dilemma of Philistines are about to go to fight against Israel. He's never going to fight against Israel, but if he blows his cover, then the Philistines are going to take him out. So he's in a serious like dilemma here. It's, his problem is kind of twofold. On one hand, on one hand, he's put himself in a place he doesn't belong. He's gone there out of unbelief and fear. But on the other hand, he's also in this moment tempted it seems to compromise what might be called his covenant fidelity, his loyalty to the Lord and to the Lord's people. Because if he were to ride with the Philistines and go to war against the Israelites, that's exactly what he would do. He would compromise his righteousness, his faithfulness. He would forfeit his anointing as Israel's future king if he's going to fight against them. And so the question becomes, how does David survive Life in exile among the Philistines while maintaining his righteousness and his faithfulness as Israel's future king. He's stuck between kind of a rock and a hard place. But this problem isn't necessarily unique to David, just the circumstance is. If you and I were to step back for a moment and think about who we are right now as followers of Jesus who are trying to live by faith and have our li lives shaped by the grace of God, if we are to kind of step back and think about who we are, we, we should quickly discover that we're sort of living right now as exiles. That we're walking through a world that is not our home. We're walking through a world that isn't right. It's not as it should be. And as a result, those who are following Jesus, we, we don't quite fit here. We don't quite belong here. You know, in college, a friend took me to a Screamo concert. Now, if you don't know what Screamo music is and you want to look it up, make sure your volume's turned down before you. Uh, it can get real loud real fast. And my friend took me to a Screamo concert. And when I walked into this converted gas station, it was quickly clear to everyone there that I did not belong. It was obvious for lots of reasons. Uh, and I felt like all eyes were turning towards me as my shirt had a collar. And uh, my pants felt, fit comfortably. They weren't like clinging to my legs like saran wrap. And I didn't have, my fingernails weren't black and eyeshadow wasn't on my face. I, I was also kind of walking through the room with a smile on my face. And that was quite unique because nobody else was, was smiling there. I remember feeling like every eye was on me and everyone was drawing the same conclusion. That guy does not, he just doesn't belong here. And so my wheel started to turn as I'm trying to figure out how do I get out of this situation without offending my friend and offending everybody else. And so I'm thinking that through and I can't help but think about us today as we follow Jesus. Now, 
We're following Jesus through a world that is not our home, and as a result, we do not belong here in it. And the fact that we don't fit in has nothing to do with the style of clothes that we wear or the type of music we listen to. It has nothing to do with nail polish and eyeshadow. It has everything to do with the fact that we are following a Savior who went through this world in a different style, a different quality of life where he was loving God and loving people, where he was marked by grace and truth. And he calls you and I to walk through this world in that style where we are loving God and loving people. We are marked out by grace and truth. We are people, we're told, according to 1 Peter chapter 1, that, that we are to be obedient children who do not conform to the pattern or the desires of our former ignorance. But instead, as, as God who called us is holy, we are to be holy in all of our conduct. That we are to live life a different kind of way. And it is this shared calling that we have is why we find ourselves sometimes stuck between a rock and a hard place. Where we are in situations where to remain loyal to Jesus and to Jesus' people might be difficult. And the way to do that while also surviving in other environments isn't always clear. And so we need a way out that won't require us to make a messy situation worse. I'll give you this example. Perhaps your scenario where your boss asks you to do something that would compromise your integrity. And you feel that if you don't comply, you may lose your job. And you feel as though you're at a loss. You don't know what to do. Well, a good place to start in a situation like that, I want to maintain loyalty to Jesus and to Jesus' people while not, you know, as I'm navigating a complex and difficult situation, the best way to start in those moments is just to pause and to be still and to take a breath. Don't start entertaining lies and filling your head with things that aren't true about who God is and about what God is like. You pause, you breathe, you begin to think about what is true and what is false, and you just kind of take your time. You don't make a rash or a quick decision that might jeopardize your well-being and betray your Savior so that you're not loyal to Jesus. In other words, in those moments... We can be served well by recapturing a virtue that is utterly alien to the society we live in right now. It's a virtue that David practices in this passage, and it is a virtue that Jesus calls us to cultivate in the gospel. It's a virtue that kind of hits us as an old-timey word, but it's the word prudence. Now, prudence isn't a word that we use very often. There's a porcelain figure of an old European woman with a bonnet on her head and a scowl on her face and a broom in her hand. And, and underneath her, there's a banner with a word stretched across it, and it's the word prude. Now, when you hear the word prudence, I don't want you to think prude, because prudence and being prudent and being a prude are completely different. There, oh, there's a world of difference between those two dynamics. And so what I want you to do is I want you to see the future king's prudence in this passage. He's got a problem, and he deals with it by practicing prudence. Look at verse 6. So Achish summoned David and told him, As the Lord lives, you are an honorable man. I think it is good to have you fighting in this unit with me, because I have found no fault in you from the day you came to me until today. But the leaders don't think you are reliable. Now go back quietly and you won't be doing anything the Philistine leaders think is wrong. Now, there's his way out. 
So David's being given a way out so he doesn't have to go to battle against the people of Israel. But notice what David does. He doesn't just take it and run. Because if he takes it and run, and if he, he's too eager to follow with Achish's advice, it might give him away. And, and he might, Achish might start becoming suspicious of David's loyalties. And that could make things really messy really fast. And so David just kind of milks that moment a bit. He milks it beginning in verse, I think, 7 or 8. He says, but what have I done from the first day I entered your service until today? What have you found against your servant to keep me from going to fight the enemies of my Lord, the king? So David gets coy. He starts practicing prudence. He, he, he knows he has a way out. and He's going to take it, but he's just going to let the moment be milked for a bit. And he wants to keep his cover. And so he, re he returns or he responds to Achish with these words. Now, underlying that phrase when he says, my Lord and King. Now, this is a stroke of prudence. This is a stroke of brilliance. Earlier in the story of 1 Samuel, David uses that phrase in reference to King Saul. He's called Saul, his Lord and his King. But once again, you have Achish making an assumption. He's drawing an assumption about what David is saying. So Achish thinks David is talking about him. But David has used words that are intentionally ambiguous so that it's not really his responsibility how Achish takes it or not. If Achish believes he's talking about him, great, because that'll help him out. But it also means that he could be using these words in reference to Saul back in Israel. So he's sort of maintaining his righteousness. He's maintaining his, his integrity with a little bit of ambiguity. He's practicing prudence by not making it explicit who he's referring to when he says, my Lord and my King. And this is where we begin to see a little bit of a contrast between Saul and Achish, because these two guys are, they read David differently. They badly misjudge David as both of those foolish kings make so many assumptions and that leads to so many problems. So you think about it like this, both Saul and Achish misjudged David. Saul considered David his mortal enemy, but David was actually his most loyal and trusted friend. Achish, on the other hand, viewed David as his most trusted and loyal friend and servant and mercenary on his side. But in actuality, David was his greatest enemy, or at least his most dangerous enemy. And so what you have in this passage is the future king of Israel dealing with his problem by practicing prudence. And this is what prudence sounds like. Prudence sounds like discretion. And this is why prudence is an alien virtue to our society right now. You and I live in a society, we are part of a culture where authenticity is valued above anything and everything else. We live in a society where promiscuous self-expression is happening all the time. Our social media feeds are littered with authenticity, or some form of it at least, and promiscuous self-expression. And because of that, you and I have forgotten the benefits and we've lost sight of an ancient classic virtue known as prudence. 
We think that being authentic means that we must disclose everything to everyone all the time. But that's not prudence. That's not wisdom. That's folly and foolishness. And so we should be a bit cautious about what we're sharing with everyone surrounding us. We should exercise some discretion when it comes to revealing things to the people around us, especially the society around us. You see, prudence is a virtue because it encourages us to consider the ripple effect of our actions and the ripple effect of our words. We should take into consideration the impact what we disclose or the impact what we reveal might have on another person. And so rather than letting it all hang out all the time, we want to show discretion. We want to practice prudence. And this has been something that's subtly flowing beneath the surface of the entire book of 1 Samuel. There's been multiple moments where prudence has been practiced by those loyal to the Lord. I'll give you one example in the prophet Samuel. This is what Samuel does in chapter 16 when he was instructed to go and to anoint David as the new king. His concern in that moment was that if he does so, he might be caught by Saul's spies. And if Saul's spies catch him, they're going to kill him. And so he's a little worried about what God is telling him to do. But then the Lord says, don't worry about it. I will tell you what to do as you get there. And so Samuel shows up at Jesse's house to anoint the future king, but he doesn't tell them everything about why he's there. He's not promiscuous with his Words. He doesn't tell them everything that he's there to do. He exercises prudence. Now, he doesn't lie, but he also doesn't give them all the information. He only spoke what was necessary for his task to be fulfilled. He knew that the future king's anointing was at stake. He knew that his words mattered. And if you and I are going to cultivate prudence and practice it as we journey through this messy life, we need to understand that our words matter too. This is why Proverbs chapter 14, verse 8 says, The wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. The simple believes everything, but the prudent gives thought to his steps. So we exercise discretion. It doesn't mean we're being inauthentic. It means we're being prudent. We don't tell everyone everything about everything that's going wrong in our lives and what we're thinking about everything. That's not prudence. That's not wisdom. It's, not, it's folly and foolishness. I remember being in a relationship with a gal who used to get really mad at me because I wasn't sharing everything about my marriage with Kim. I wasn't telling her and, and her husband everything about what we would fight about or when we might be struggling through a stretch of life. I didn't disclose everything. And the reason I didn't tell her is because I didn't trust her. I've seen her handle information about other people in poor ways. It wasn't that I was being inauthentic in my relationship with this gal. It's I was being prudent. I was practicing discretion. I wasn't telling her everything because, honestly, she wasn't someone who could handle everything. And not every one of your followers on Twitter, not every one of your followers on Facebook, not every one of your followers on Instagram, they can't handle everything either. So don't be foolishly airing out all of your laundry in ways that will prove harmful to those who are hearing and seeing and interacting with those dynamics. 
We live in a society today that doesn't know how to practice prudence. Discretion is accused as being inauthentic, but the Bible actually says it's a form of wisdom. And so when you consider what it means to be human, when you think about what it means for you to be a human being created in the image of God, does a secular definition of authenticity mean more to you than God's call in your life to practice prudence? Are you being swept away by a reckless current with a terrible understanding of what it means to be authentic? Or are you practicing prudence, exercising wisdom, showing some caution? Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 16. He says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. The word shrewd there is prudence. Jesus is saying, be prudent. Now, practicing prudence, again, it isn't deceptive. It's discerning. It's discerning. It's thinking. It's considering, wondering, okay, how are my words and my actions going to impact those around me? It's a discerning way to live when you're surrounded by wolves. This was Jesus' point. And this is where David was in 1 Samuel chapter 29. He was surrounded by wolves. He was in the camp of the Philistines. And if he doesn't practice prudence, they're going to kill him. But what does he do is he practices prudence in a brilliant way, and he doesn't make an already messy situation worse. You know, missionaries around the world serving Jesus in far tougher contexts than our own, they, they do this all the time. Under threat of persecution, practicing prudence is their, is their way of protection. You just think how bad it would be if missionaries in Indonesia or missionaries in North Korea just aired everything on social media. They wouldn't last very long in those lands. They wouldn't serve people very well in those lands. They they would jeopardize themselves and they would jeopardize the people that they are called to love with the gospel. You see, prudence is a virtue we need to recover. It's a virtue we need to cultivate. We need to show some discretion in our dealings with life in a fallen world. And we find ourselves stuck between a rock and a hard place or in a messy situation and we want a way out. Well, prudence might be the way out. And this is exactly what happens for David. His practice of prudence is what would open the door. It would give him a way out in this story. It would serve the future king of Israel's preservation because he's able to get out of the situation with his righteousness towards Israel and his fidelity towards Yahweh. His righteousness and his faithfulness is still intact. Notice what happens. You look at the passage. And it might have stuck out to you that the Lord's presence isn't readily apparent. That God isn't mentioned, he he isn't talked to. Well, he's he's mentioned one time, but that one time it's coming out of the mouth of an unbeliever. It's coming out of the mouth of Achish. But just because the Lord's presence isn't loud in this story, it doesn't mean that it's not active. It doesn't mean that the Lord's not working. And so what we begin to see is is what we read in this story is how you and I ordinarily experience our walk with the Lord. The Lord's presence isn't always loud in our lives. But just because it's not loud, it doesn't mean the Lord's not at work. In fact, I believe the Lord ordinarily works in subtle, subdued, and quiet ways. And this is what he's doing here. There's a scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann who makes this statement. He says, there is no mention of God here, but we are dealing with a highly self-conscious theological literature that observes the undercurrent of divine governance. Another word for that is providence. 
providence without being explicit. He says, Yahweh is with David everywhere. Surely with him among the Philistines as elsewhere. Surely in chapter 29 is in those places where it is explicitly stated. The narrator is not so disbelieving as to perceive the outcome of this story as luck. He's saying the future king was preserved by the providence of God. The providence of God working through the prudence of David. This is how the story is unfolding. And so you and I want to step back and think about how it's the task of the church and how it is the task of believers to reflect back on their lives and to see in retrospect where the hand of God was at work to preserve us, to support us, to save us, to deliver us, knowing that in retrospect we see things that we might not have seen on the, on, on the other side. Because the Lord's providence is often subtle, it's often quiet, it's not always loud. In 2010, my wife made a passing comment about an odd-looking freckle on my back. And she took that, and she, she took it upon herself to schedule for me an appointment with a dermatologist, and a biopsy was taken and examined, and it turned out to be melanoma. And when the doctor was breaking this news to me, and the doctor said that I was quite lucky. I was quite fortunate. The doctor said that had I waited six months, I probably, the, the diagnosis would probably have been fatal. But the doctor said that they caught it. Now, there are two ways to interpret that situation. You can interpret it on one hand as just luck. Or, if you're someone who trusts in the Lord of the Bible and you are following Jesus, you may recognize the Lord's subtle providence working through a passing glance and a wife's activities to preserve my life, to put me back to where I belonged at the time. Now, those types of stories are true for every follower of Christ, if we can just calm down enough and reflect back enough to see it. God's preserving presence may not be loud, but it's always active. So we want to take some time and prayerfully reflect on our lives trusting that we will see God's grace and we will see his mercy. We will become aware of his providence, bringing us along and putting us in the places and the stations of life that we, where we belong. This is what the Lord does for David. He is subtly working through David's prudence to preserve his life, including his righteousness and his faithfulness towards Saul and Israel, which would need to be intact if, if David's going to ascend to the throne with integrity. And the Lord is working out this situation to bring David back to where he belongs. And this is what happens in verse 10. Achish told David to get up early in the morning, you and your master's servants who came with you. And when you've all gotten up early, go as soon as it's light. So David and his men got up early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. Now he's referring to Ziklag, which was his hideout, his, the place where he would live and operate from while among the Philistines. And this is incredible, and we're going to see this next week, is that when David gets back to Ziklag, he starts to... He starts to rescue people, and the Lord is putting him in a position to advance his agenda in the world, and he begins to rescue people and to execute justice in ways that were desperately needed. And we'll see all that next week, but before we get there, there's a striking contrast between 
the ending of chapter 28 and the ending of chapter 29. Now the last line of chapter 28 was ominous. Remember from last week, it was ominous as Saul and his companions, they kind of, companions, they trudge off into the darkness. But then you get to the end of chapter 29, and it's not night. It's morning time. The sun is starting to rise as David and his men get up, and the future king of Israel steps into the daylight with his righteousness and his faithfulness still intact. And you can see God's merciful providence pursuing, pursuing and preserving his servants, even when they found themselves in a mess of their own making. David was in the land of the Philistines because of his unbelief and fear, and yet God brought him back to where he belonged. The Lord refused to let Israel's future king go. He preserves him and he brings him back. See, David's story, not only did the Lord save him from Saul time and time again, but the Lord, the Lord saved him from himself. And in my own life, the Lord didn't just save me from melanoma. He's saving me from myself. So when I find myself in messes of my own making, the Lord's not letting me go. He's working subtly and quietly through all that is happening to bring me back to where I belong, to put me in a position where I might honor him and help people. And this is what he's doing in your lives too. He's working subtly and quietly to put you in positions where you can honor him and help people. So the future king of Israel couldn't shake himself loose from the grip of God's providence from the grip of God's grace and the good news of the gospel is that you and I can't either. That the Lord stands on the other side of the door and he hears our hands slapping against the doorknob, unable to get a grip to get out of the mess that we've made for ourselves. And yet with the grip of his grace and the subtle power of his providence, he comes to the other side and he opens the door for us, coming to our rescue so that we might step out of darkness and into the daylight. The subtle providence of God doing that over and over and over again in our lives. The subtle providence of God that is most clearly displayed in the world when this little, this little town known as Bethlehem would witness the arrival of the Messiah, of the Anointed One. This Messiah, this Anointed One, who would then be raised in a podunk place called Nazareth, Subtly and quietly growing up, subtly and quietly learning, subtly and quietly being brought by the providence of God to, to establish the kingdom of God in the world. This same Jesus, this same anointed one who would go to the cross and he would die there. But the good news of the gospel is that after he died, he wouldn't stay dead, that once he was buried in a dark tomb that was sealed from the outside. Since he died with his innocence still intact, he died with his righteousness still at work. He didn't stay dead, but instead God rolled the stone away so that Jesus himself could step back out into the daylight and ascend to his throne where he rules and reigns with righteousness. A righteousness that he now gives to everyone who trusts in him. A righteousness that he now bestows upon those who put their faith in him. A righteousness that he preserves so that we might cross the finish line of faith and step into the light of his eternal kingdom. 
a righteousness that he preserves so that when all is said and done, we are where we belong. When all is said and done, our lives are preserved by the grace and the subtle providence of God so that no matter how many messes we make as we journey life, we're going to make it across the finish line because our God's not giving up on us. We live in the grip of his grace and under the preserving power of his providence, and we trust in that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace to see? Give us grace to see the power of prudence and wisdom, and when we are lacking it, give us grace to ask you for it, and would you provide it to us? And give us grace to rest in your providence of knowing that you are with us everywhere we go. Give us grace to hope in the fact that we cannot cut ourselves off from you forever. We cannot wiggle out of your grip. We thank you for that realization, and I pray that that realization would encourage our hearts today as we continue to worship you this morning. God, we love you, and we pray that you would be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.